For those looking for a liberatory martial arts pedagogy and curriculum, we've created Liberation Martial Arts. Thanks to Xavier Barker, Catherine Breen, Jerome D'Acutane, and John Jitsu for signing up. You can sign up for Liberation Martial Arts through our website at sapapod.com. This will also give you access to uncut versions of our shows without breaks or interruptions, plus early access to our bonus shows, Fighters Brew and SDS9. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. This episode was sponsored by SH, Alejandro, RJ, Thomas, Rachel, Berkshire People's Gym, and New Guy. Sponsors not only get a mention on every episode, but also a monthly training session with me. Sign up on Patreon. Coach Jason and I are back to talk about two important fights. One sealed the deal on who the pound-for-pound best is in the UFC, regardless of what the UFC propaganda machine says. The other was possibly the biggest MMA-related fight in history, the biggest crossover combat sports fight in history, and one of the biggest boxing fights in history. The first fight was Islam Mahachev defeating the former pound-for-pound king Alexander Volkanovsky for the second time in emphatic fashion. The second was undefeated lineal heavyweight champion Tyson Fury versus the lineal UFC heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou. We've already covered Ngannou's departure from the UFC and his history-making boxing and MMA deal. But before we dive into our study of both fights, I want to see if Jason has anything he wants to say. I uh, thank you, Sam. And I thought about I thought about this rant long and hard. And anyone who's ever listened to us knows that I make no bones about my feelings for Dana White, the UFC, and and honestly, most MMA fans in general. You know, but I don't want to talk about that. You know, Dana and his ilk are here to stay, unfortunately. Uh, but over the weekend, we saw a glimpse into what real confidence looks like, real self-worth. And no amount of media shilling or propaganda could shake that fucking confidence. So just let me take a moment and congratulate Francis Ngannou, not for just betting on himself, which in my opinion, you know, it isn't that difficult when you're one of the best pure power punchers with the best chin on the planet. But I want to commend him and his team for understanding the economics of boxing and fight promotion, you know, and promoting is part of fight promotion. And sometimes Dana White conveniently forgets that is part of his fucking job as a promoter. But, but, but fuck Dana White. I want this to be more positive. Um, um, and fuck the UFC, both literally <laughs> and, and figuratively. You know, so I want this to be about Francis Ngannou, a man who chose not to fight for or with Dana White and the UFC. You know, again, both literally and figuratively, um, if you're picking up on the combat sports metaphors. And and also a man that saw the economics of boxing and crossing over to another discipline as champion uh, that saw that opportunity had massive potential. Honestly, though, uh, I don't see how MMA fans are so blinded by the UFC machine and their weak ass Jonestown style mind control. But (laughs) Francis understood. Right. I, I. I don't understand it. Like, if you've been paying attention at all, Francis understood his worth. He understood the current state of boxing's heavyweight division, the lack of star power, 
the profitability and revenue generation with massive ROI in comparison to the initial upfront investment. He understood the wear and tear on his knees from a fucking MMA fight camp and the lack of wear and tear from a boxing fight camp. He understands that Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather had people believing that the earth was flat and that <laughs> Conor McGregor that looked good in that fight. You know, and he also saw the fucking Paul brothers are making millions while bo- boxing UFC vets and making those vets look fucking silly, but making those vets rich in the fucking process. You know, so so boxers and anyone with a basic understanding of economics understand the concept of money on the table and the wider ecosystem of profit and revenue generation. And mixed martial arts fighters can't even grasp the concept of crabs in a bucket. They continue to grovel for $50,000 to a totally subjective dickhead overlord that is as spiteful as he is hypocritical. So here's a little lesson to, and I apologize if this seems a little bit angry, (laughs) but but I've been thinking about this and this is the, the, the toned down, watered down version. This is the toned down. This is. (laughs) So... Um, so a little lesson to UFC fans and more importantly to UFC fighters, what Francis did against the UFC and against Tyson Fury was pro athlete shit, big league, big time, motherfucking major league shit. So when these assholes are begging Dana White for $50,000, they're going to know they're UFC entertainers, entertainers, but old Francis, he's the motherfucking professional. He's, he's the pro. I like that because you often talk about high level shit, but this is above high level shit. This is pro level shit, pro athlete shit. Yep. He did his research. He did some fact finding. He paid attention. He understood the landscape. He understood the pressure and narrative control from the media shields. And he stood firm. He stood firm. He sat out for 21 months. Everyone cast him off, talked about his age. That had to be scary, right? Hell yeah. I'm positive it was, but he realized it was some time to work on some really strong boxing fundamentals to sort of bury the message and get the word out on who he is and what he's done. And if the fucking Paul brothers can do it from YouTube, the world's hardest mixed martial arts puncher shouldn't have that tough of a time generating a little bit of market buzz or industry hype. Just maybe, maybe. If the UFC would have promoted him and done their fucking jobs, they could have been a part of this. But short-sighted is as short-sighted does. You know, you think about the deal that Francis initially offered them to re-sign, and it seems like a discount at this point. Absolutely, it would have been a discount. So, But I think where, where the most important thing, and see, people started to lose sight of this, is when you are... When you are world class, you can start to dictate your terms. The UFC doesn't like like world class athletes; they like stars. Oh, um, but most of these guys don't have a high athletic ceiling. But they'll, they'll fight and they'll be entertaining. And he wasn't Francis Ngannou wasn't going to be told how to fight. He wasn't going to be told his worth. When you're that high level, you can dictate your terms and he did that and everyone that panned him everyone that wished for him to fail just so someone else can tell him what to do and how to be 
fuck, that's not capitalism. <laughs> right? That's not good old right-wing jingoistic capitalism. What is that? Sounds a lot like you're pandering to your corporate overlords. It's funny how all these UFC right-wingers call themselves capitalists, right? Free market capitalists. But the te- second you test that free market, they want to rein you in. <laughs> yeah. So basically, to them, bootlicking is more important than money. Absolutely. It's all about social control. And I mean, I don't want to get into the, <laughs> to the politics and philosophy of it because it's what sickens me the most about mixed martial arts. But I was, just, I was just very happy to see someone stand up, know his worth, put in for his worth, and understand the economics of the fight game, like just the economics of boxing. How much money some of these folks are bringing in from food and beverage contracts alone, but you're begging Dana White for $50,000 and you're fighting in a main event. That's silly. Even Connor, even John Jones, UFC has broken the will of every big star except Francis, right? Francis knew his worth. I'm sure he was scared, but nobody has yet shown this level of, to your point, professional composure. None. None. Because he was willing to lose. He was willing to lose. He was willing to get buried by their propaganda machine. He was willing to never fight again to get what he felt he was worth. That was more important. And that is the ultimate sacrifice. And fuck anyone that said he was scared. (laughs) Dude, it's much scarier to fight Tyson Fury in boxing than John Jones in MMA. Hell yeah, while simultaneously going up against the UFC and their propaganda machine. That's the scariest of all. Right? They tried to bury him, the world's most entertaining combat sport athlete who picked it up in his fucking 30s, I think, or late 20s, whatever the fuck it was, decides he's just going to knock everyone's head heads off and be one of the most entertaining knockout artists for your viewing pleasure, and you shit on him because he won't do it for Dana White. He won't do it at a discount when he realizes his worth, when he realizes he could test the market and make more. Again, you don't, these people don't love fighters. They love fighters being told what to do and how to fight for their viewing pleasure. They love the UFC. They love that corporate overlord. They love ownership. They love monopoly. They love, they, they love the power dynamic. Who to fight, when to fight. I'll tell you what. Maybe, just maybe, if you're world-class, you think twice about taking fights on 11 days again. Maybe, right? How's that working out for everybody these fucking days? Francis Ngannou is not only the heaviest puncher in UFC history, but he's also the smartest because he was the only person to figure out 25 million is higher than $50,000 bonus. And... I feel bad for anyone that ha- if I don't you you've seen how I reacted to my boss. I think I sent you the video <laughs> of me telling telling the CEO of the company to go fuck himself, right? And I'm still employed, strangely enough, um, at least until he hears this podcast. <laughs> but so so let that resonate just for a second and think about how how much it pains me to see fighters that I've worked with, fighters that I've known, beg for fifty thousand after knocking out an undefeated fighter. Here's the other thing, right? $50,000 bonuses, they haven't been keeping up with inflation. So $50,000 10 years ago when they were offering it is a lot different than $50,000 today. 
Oh, yeah. Well, you try to explain the cost of living adjustment to um, to your average mixed martial arts fighter or fight fan. They, they won't get it. They don't want to get it. Um, but there's there's a better way and a much more equitable solution. But the second you go down that road, you no longer have fighters of indentured servitude. You have you, you go down that way to a, a fighter's union or some sort of equity or a concept of money on the table, how much money is being generated. And I tell you guys, it doesn't. Have you seen some of the UFC fucking posters lately? You can't tell me their production value is getting better. <laughs> if you listen to to uh to a drunk Daniel Cormier, Cormier stumble on the microphone, you can't tell me their production value is worthy of whatever twenty million, thirty million. When the Jake when the Jake Pauls of the world can do it from their fucking mediocre podcast and make these former UFC athletes fucking millionaires. Maybe, just maybe, there's a better way. Or maybe these fighters are just commodities that could never command a premium. So they're fighting for for uh, servitude wages just so they can call themselves pro-athletes. Francis is the pro-athlete. A pro-athlete would never say, I'll, f- I'll play quarterback in the NFL for free as an all-pro because I love the game. <laughs> I'm not saying that. They know their fucking worth. So, so be an athlete, be a professional, and maybe you bring the market up with you. But no, no, there is no market. There's a monopoly in your owners own you. They bought and sold you a long fucking time ago. All right. So when this is all said and done, I hope you have some money set aside because they are, there's, there's going to be no pension. Right. And even the guys that they take care of, Paul Felder, everyone forgets Paul Felder had to beg with a GoFundMe to get his fighters down to Brazil. They forget about that. They forget about that. How long? That was a while ago. How much money was the UFC raking in back then when Paul Felder and anyone who would have donated to that GoFundMe, was Paul going to pay them back? Was the UFC going to reimburse Paul to pay them back? Or would he just pocket it and keep moving? If the fucking fans have to subsidize fighters, especially world-class fighters, maybe just maybe there's a fucking problem with equitable pay. Uh, with the GoFundMe, there was a time where a lot of UFC fighters were doing GoFundMes and then all of a sudden just disappeared. I definitely feel like the UFC got involved and was like, you guys aren't allowed to do this anymore. Why should any fan who won't pay for anyone uh, wouldn't bring the rest of his community up, wouldn't even consider it? All these right wing lunatics are so quick to say, yeah, I'll contribute to a, co- a, a company's <laughs> contracted fighter. They'll contribute to that. I'll contribute to that because the company they work for won't take care of them. I'll actually pay the UFC's bills for them so that a better corner can give that fighter a better chance of optimal performance, therefore upping the production value and entertainment value of that promotion, all of which I'm already paying $80 for for their fucking crummy pay-per-view where I got to listen to a uh, high Joe Rogan and a, a, a drunk Daniel Cormier stumble all over these fucking fighters names. <laughs> it's always bootlicking above all else. Always, always bootlicking and hypocrisy. And Hey, I don't mind if you bootlick a little bit, but how about some fucking logical consist- consistency just for a second? <laughs> all right. Now let's talk about Mahachev versus Volkanovsky too, where Mahachev defeated Volkanovsky by a high kick knockdown followed by punches. First off, 
let's address how the UFC still has John Jones ranked number one over not only both of these men, but I don't think he should even be ranked because he's fought in two divisions where the strength of schedule is so bad. You could argue that those divisions should be scrapped. He's also only had one fight in over three years. Jason, what do you think about the official UFC rankings? Well, I think uh, Jones being ranked number one pound for pound is, and maybe this is conspiracy theory on my part, I think it's merely a byproduct of the spite and attempted narrative control over the best heavyweight and old Francis Ngannou having told the UFC to fuck off. You know? I think you're right. I, that's what I think. So, And trust me, it will get even sillier and more ignorant as the media control and the twisted monopoly um you know that shit means zero accountability and even less self-awareness so there should be no argument that machev is the number one pound for pound fighter in mma if you submit charles Oliveira and you ko ko volkanowski i mean it's safe to say that you're the fucking man now after this fight i think i texted you that that performance by machev was perfect we talk about high level but to do this at the highest level against the best in the world. I mean, Jason, how the hell did this happen? How did Mahachev end up having such a performance against someone we said was the pound-for-pound best in Volkanovski? Uh, Well, he's the bigger fighter first, and Mahachev's striking continues to improve. And in the sport of mixed martial arts, it's, and I've said this before, it's fairly typical for a fighter's strengths to shield them from their deficits, right? The, the multiple disciplines and phases tend to have those habits or deficits or even, even just simply habits and tendencies. Uh, they, they tend to remain, right? Because you can always put the, if you're a real strong fighter, you can, or a real strong wrestler, you can put the fighter on their backs. If you're getting touched up a little bit and you're a little more physical, you can put them against the cage, you know? So those, those tendencies, those deficits, they tend to stay. You know, but Islam is a very good striker and an outstanding grappler who might still have been world champion and in the pound-for-pound pound rankings if his striking never improved a lick. But it did. Offensively and defensively. And here he is, the best pound-for-pound pound fighter in the world by any objective standard. So it's, it's improving. In, in those areas that were initial vulnerabilities, not saying they're not going to be vulnerabilities because I'll just put him on his back and I'll wrestle. Well, I mean, what opens itself up if a fighter is really attentive in your wrestling threat? If he's in a more crouched stance and he's the shorter fighter, what opportunities tend to present themselves? Oh, a head kick for one. So, especially when you're fighting a, an orthodox fighter or a fighter who starts orthodox a lot and uh, you're a southpaw fighter and, you know, those that that power side against power side ends up uh, working pretty well for you if you can get some mustard on it. To that point, with Volkanovski being so short, he's probably always used to people throwing high kicks at him. And his opponents always do. I'm sure this is something he runs into in the training room. So this is something he's always expecting. So how did Mahachev do what even the kicker Yair Rodriguez could not do? See, this is a really good question, right? And I thought about this for a while. Um, for one, 
Islam had 25 minutes of real data to work with from his first fight with Volkanovski. And granted, it was what, seven, eight months before, maybe nine months. Um, But that experience and that time spent with Volkanovski matters. Also, I don't think Yair, I mean, Yair definitely doesn't bring the same wrestling threat that Islam does, you know. Um, Thus, a taller stance against Yair makes, makes more sense. So when you become, and do you remember, I forget which fight it was. It might've been the Oliveira fight, but I, I said, Islam striking started to bother me. Like it was, it's improving a lot. His right hook is money. He is strong. Fundamentally, he stays in a good stance and it's, he's not one of those fighters that failed to develop because he was so strong with his wrestling, you know, his, his. Um, his offensive and defensive striking have blossomed quite well. Take a look at some uh, some of Habib's fights and how bad his striking used to be. And he still probably could have ran Rashad over most of the 155-pound division with just his, his wrestling, but still his striking improved. And thus, when you become a threat in various phases of the game, they tend to complement each other. As they defend one, the other opens up. So when you start to work, when you start to play chess instead of checkers, when you start to think a couple moves ahead or you know what you do well and how someone would defend what you do obviously well would make them vulnerable where? I'm assuming Machev's camp um, is starting to prepare that way given how how far his, his striking has come. A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Now, with that kick, what struck me wasn't just a setup. I kept watching the kick, and I don't know if you slowed down the kick at all, but the kick looked like a body kick. If you block a kick by the time it's landing, it's too late. You start blocking the kick based on its trajectory. Well, the trajectory for that kick was the body. But then he snapped it up toward the head. So it was kind of like one of those tricky karate taekwondo kicks. That's high-level kicking skills. Mahachev does his camps now in Dagestan. And that team he has there with him is not just producing good grapplers, but they're no joke when it comes to striking either. So it's not just that he's doing stuff that a grappler who can strike can do. He's doing stuff that crafty, experienced kickers, strikers are doing. He could do those things now. No, he definitely, he definitely can. And, and I, I was watching him set up like right hook left kick to the body or he'd throw away shots and he'd throw that left kick to the body. And I'm thinking this guy's, this guy's a pretty good kicker for a, 
like a grappler wrestler. And then I've got theories how I've always felt it was a little bit easier to teach. You never hear of boxers who are like naturally strong having a wrestler's chance, but wrestlers who are naturally heavy-handed have a puncher's chance. It just doesn't tend to work out in the opposite world, right? Um, I can have a pretty good grip, but I'm, I don't have like a grappler's chance of submitting one of the Gracies with a heel hook, right? If I'm if I'm if I'm not high level, you just don't you just don't tend to see that very often. So, um, it understanding and this goes back to some of our our earlier conversations where wrestling sets up striking, striking sets up wrestling. You're going to start finding knockouts when you are solid in all phases of the game. Because as they protect against one aspect, another opportunity will present itself. And that's when the good shit starts to come. When you're hunting it, it looks wild and silly and terrible. And yeah, the just bleed crowd doesn't give a shit anymore. And maybe we've just been so beaten down and inundated by those fights that we actually think that they're entertaining now. But you start to see world-class shit. And you're like, wow. Okay, like that's what it really is supposed to look like. Um, that's high level stuff. And whenever you're, whenever you're prepared, and whenever you're, you're built as a well rounded, well developed fighter in all aspects of of mixed martial arts, you're going to start seeing more opportunities present themselves. And I think that's what you saw. Now, with that perfect win, Islam Mahachev also gave the perfect post fight speech. He said he stands with Palestine, then waved the Palestinian flag. Outside of Bilal Muhammad, in combat sports and among the champions, you're not seeing this other than from Mahachev. He's really solidifying his place amongst the greats, in my eyes. Now, let's get on to the biggest fight in MMA boxing history, where Francis Ngannou was one point shy from the biggest upset in championship-level boxing history. He lost a split decision by one point, and many had Ngannou winning. Fury definitely was not having an easy time because there were definitely moments that he was frustrated because he threw multiple elbows, which he never got called for. Ngannou didn't throw them. Fury did. One, the commentators caught, but if you keep watching, there were others Fury threw to keep Ngannou off of him. He also threw some back fists and even went for what looked like takedowns just to interrupt the flow of the fight. You don't do that if you think you're coasting to an easy win, right? So there was definitely times where he was like, damn, this motherfucker might actually beat me, right? And especially after the knockdown, I think he was like, oh my God, I'm losing right now. So I think he was definitely surprised. Now, Jason, Nganu clearly performed well. But the same collective mind who thought Ronda Rousey was a good striker because of her training footage thought that Nganu couldn't box because of his training footage. Having been a coach, can you tell the quality of a fighter from just seeing them hitting the mitts and a bag and seeing them do strength and conditioning? And these are only the footage they want to share, right? It's not like you're in there with them, right? Or are people wasting their time trying to read into training footage especially when it's not even sparring. Oh, it's an absolute waste of time. <laughs> it's, it is meaningless. Like when we used to weigh Felder in 
we do these weight checks every time we come into practice before and after. And we one time we just like put a 10 pound uh, weight uh, in his uh, in his whatever his, his compression shorts and got him on the scale and made it look like he was 10. He was already always a heavy 155 or real big. So it just made it look like he had 10 extra pounds to cut. And I realized that we didn't even have to do that with the weight. We could have just had him more hydrated one day and then put some water on him and pretended it was <laughs> after practice. And that's what we were weighing out. None of it, it's all meaningless. It's all performative. It's all theater. And you're, you're not putting out stuff you don't want to get out. So if it's out there and you see it, you see it and you're not going to be able to pick up anything. I don't, even if you see 20 seconds of sparring footage where someone who shouldn't be getting the best of him gets the best of him, you might be doing 30 second goes or a shark tank and rotating fresh guys in every time. And it could be his 10th round and someone's fresh and just, just beating the living shit out of him against the cage. And you're just trying to test the fighter's metal or keep him mentally there and trying to keep him focused in, in hitting the right stuff when he's tired. It, it, it's meaningless. It ha- it's vo- it's completely devoid of context, and anyone who tries to speculate on it is only doing doing it for clicks or likes. Um, otherwise, it's a fool fool's errand if you think you're getting anything real out of it. It means nothing. And I watched some of it. And they 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 were saying things like, "Oh, Francis is in trouble." They're watching him hit pads when I've, he broke John Wood's hand. It, hitting focus what? mitts at, at syndicate yeah that's how hard francis hits and so you think him being obviously he's either tired or they're just it's throwaway b-roll that they want you guys to see because it wasn't dewey cooper dewey cooper has to wear like seven body shields it wasn't it wasn't uh, eric nixick um who's like built like a little gorilla he's real strong and these are the people holding pads for him on the regular. So when you get someone else, just sort of like a throwaway, um, and you get some footage that doesn't look all that inspiring. Well, again, context is everything. This is the the hardest puncher in um, that that I've ever witnessed in person. So there you go. <laughs> now we just saw Ngannou's camp take Sean Strickland to a victory over Israel Adesanya. Now having seen this fight. What are your thoughts about Extreme Couture and Ngannou's decision to stick with the coaches who got him to the dance? Because a lot of people were like, what are you doing? You need to hire new coaches, new boxing coaches, right? But now, man, this team is good. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, And they brought in Mike Tyson also, right? So they had Mike Tyson, they, a, a real boxing mind who's been around the sport. And Customato it was you know, the, the legendary Customato. So you bring a bit of that approach um, and so, like decades worth of understanding. I don't personally like Dewey Cooper, but I got to give credit where credit is due. Like the, the man can coach and he can bring in, he can, he can, he can manage a camp well. I do really like Eric Nixick. I think he's fucking brilliant. I do. I think he's one of the most underappreciated, um, overlooked fight minds. And he still gets a lot of credit. What I'm saying is um, he's smarter than Greg Jackson, and he's a probably a better technical coach than Trevor Whitman. I think he's that good. Maybe it's because Nick Sick doesn't look like a nerd, right? He looks like a fighter. So there's kind of like a bias against that. He looks like a polar bear or something. Yeah. <laughs> he's just so big. Um, 
but but he's a really he's a, a really nice man. Um, he he again another guy that can really run a camp. And I, I used to train over at Extreme Couture. I bought uh, a boxing ring from uh, Extreme Couture from Eric, and he used to let me and my fighters, Gabriel Rosado, uh, Rick Nuno, a bunch a bunch of other guys. Uh, I used to bring in um, uh, my ex wife. Yeah. So um, when you see the the way. It's nice to know that here's where I pat myself in the back. <laughs> as as a coach, you also understand who who the good coaches are, even if they're not the popular coaches. I never really got the the hype around Greg Jackson. I don't know him, and I might be miss I might be off base. So I apologize. I'm not hating. I just would listen to him in the corner, and I'd watch him coach some fighters, and it was always like a lot of hey and <laughs> over overly calm. A moment of Zen. Let's let's do nothing. Let's give no advice. Let's just be calm. I want us to more footwork and we're breathing. <laughs> and I guess I guess there's a place for that, but it seemed like a lot of fluff and flair and a whole lot of nothing. And they were really good about making a fight a non-fight and keeping it close. Hey, there's a time for that when you're outgunned, but you had the best camp in the fucking world. <laughs> Maybe the UFC doesn't make it make it um, a full fledged blood sport if. You know, you didn't corrupt the sport with nothing but footwork and calling punches, check punches, just because you're throwing them while you're backing up the entire time. So that that's, again, if I say I'm not going to hate on him, and I just did. So again, my apologies. Fuck him. Um, Fuck him. <laughs> you know? So um, I think Nixick is, is, is next level. And when they, when they say he's a great coach at a great camp, um, I think he's probably the the way he can handle some of the how do i say this the most horrible human beings and get the best out of them he can just compartmentalize and their tools and he makes them better tools and he works with the utility of that tool to make it correct for the job and he turns a one two puncher in strickland who brought nothing else except maybe a few teeps to the table or a few uh front kicks and just has him walk through israel adesanya you know i think he because he is i think he's a considerate and concerned coach as well i think he likes his fighters um and so i think he can tap into that 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 thing that a coach needs to do with you know, the fighters are, a lot of them have some hard bark on them and a lot of them are just dicks. So it's sort of hard to, it's hard to meet them in that genuine space between like the soul and the brain. I think Nixick is able to find that, that spot with just about everybody he coaches. I, on the other hand, am not able. <laughs> now. Could you tell what their game plan was from watching that fight? High guard and from Nagan from Nganu, and they just he kept everything fundamentally sound. And they realized you keep him fundamentally sound. You don't have him gas out. You don't have him get hit with anything stupid clean. You keep his hands up and you keep him present. I think they knew their fighter was going to be in it, no matter what. And I think they prepared him for such. And uh, he was able to make it. He was able to make it a very, very close fight. And he was able to find his shots in the third. He had another nice shot in, in the eighth. 
Um, and any time that he did get sort of bum rushed and bullied a little bit or pushed back, he pushed back in and showed, Hey, I'm, I'm every bit as physical as you. I don't give a fuck how big you are. And I, I think in some of those situations, it sort of shook Tyson Fury, not being able to just sort of bully, bull, like bull his way in and lean heavy and just hang because Francis was just too fucking strong. And I, I think that he, he probably outperformed um, everybody's expectations, but fought as they had expected. That's one thing Conor McGregor didn't have in his fight, right? He was always off balance. Francis threw himself off balance a couple of times throwing really hard shots. But overall, to your point, he was really steady and balanced. And I think even McGregor said that about himself. He didn't really have his balance for boxing. It was like a different type of balance that he didn't realize he didn't have, right? And so I think unless you're a boxing trainer, you know about boxing, you have to have a certain stability and steadiness. It's not about how hard you throw. It's about how balanced you are when you throw. And I think that's one of the hardest things to learn, especially for MMA fighters who just want to like swang and bang. But Francis, for the most part, had that in this fight. And in hindsight now, I realize Francis Ngannou was a very bad style matchup for Tyson Fury, even if Tyson Fury came in super prepared in his best shape. Like he was a much worse style matchup for Fury than even Wilder was. Because a lot of the things Fury likes to do, a lot of the things that he's good at are just like normal dumb shit people do in MMA. All the neo footwork, switching stances, clinching, leaning on people, putting them up against the cage, right? In this case, the ropes, all that shit. He was doing MMA shit in the boxing ring, except Francis was used to that. So when he went southpaw and Francis went southpaw with him. You could tell he was shook. And then when he went back to Orthodox and then Francis stayed southpaw, he was like shook again. And then when he would try to clinch him and try to just lean on him, and then Francis would just like shuck him, get around him. And he was like, what the fuck? I don't, I'm used to being better than everybody else at clinch. How are you better than me at clinch? I'm used to being stronger than everybody at clinch. How are you stronger than me at clinch? So all the stuff that he was good at, just happens to be like normal shit in MMA, right? So in hindsight, I realize now that's the bad style matchup. Not to say that Fury can't beat him again because you can't just discount all those years of boxing, but there's like unique stylistic things about him that are very normal in MMA. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm sure that that is a bit of a mind fuck for, um, for Tyson Fury. You know, everything when he, where he thought he was going to be the stronger man and he gets pushed off and shocked. And the what I was super impressed about when you brought up uh, switching to Southpaw, when Francis switched to Southpaw to match him, he, I think it was in the eighth round. In the first part of the eighth round, he lunged long with like a long left hand and he looked bad. He was off balance. He missed. Um, and I think he got countered. And I said, I don't like him in that stance. And I think it was 30 seconds later, or maybe it was early in the ninth round, he throws a beautiful left hand from the southpaw position on a retreating uh, Fury that the Fury tries to counter him. And it, he he made a real-time adjustment, and he did it perfectly. You can tell he was sorting to, starting to settle in and sort of settling in with, with, with boxing. I think if he does that, 
it was also very important for this not to look like a shit show like the McGregor fight was. Um, because everyone was looking to call it uh, just a crash, a cash grab. Well, fuck, man. If you're making 50 grand in the UFC, maybe you should have a little bit of a cash grab. But why Why is it a, a negative for Francis to go for this cash grab? Well, because all lights, were all the, the spotlight was on him in hopes that he would stumble or fumble the bag or whatever the fuck <laughs> they were trying to say. So when he went in there and he was fundamentally sound and he had a great chin, he had a great chin and a ton of power and he was fundamentally sound and you realize... In today's heavyweight division, that can get you pretty fucking far. It can obviously get you 10, round, 10 rounds to a split decision with the world champ. I mean, 40-something-year-old George Foreman, when he made that comeback and won the title, he had even less than this. I mean, in his prime, he was something else. But that 40-year-old version that won the title again, he had even less than Francis Ngannou has right now, right? And he still won the title. Oh, yeah. Yep. They would just walk with that cross arm guard, just walk you down with his pants pulled up to his nipples or his, his trunks pulled up to his nipples. And he just put a one, two on, on my poor Michael Moore. <laughs> yep. That's the thing, right? Heavyweight. It's it's heavyweight boxing is a lot like UFC heavyweight, right? It's not the deepest division because the biggest dudes go to different sports. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the way I look at it is. So Francis, I mean, we can talk about how strong he is and just how, how good of an athlete he really is to, to do the things he did in mixed martial arts in relative short order. But there are some things that I see that, I mean, whether, whether it's his, it, the, the difficult years um, in childhood, the, the tough times he had as a young adult, when the when a six foot nine world champion elbows you in the face and you eat it, and he didn't cry foul, he was just mad that he got elbowed in the face, but he didn't make the mean face like Felder makes when anyone scores on him. He just stayed composed. He just sort of furrowed his brow and was like, "You're fucking dead now, bro." <laughs> like, and he just kept coming at him with his hands up and a good. You give me a clean elbow against someone and they still want to fight me and they show no real emotion other than like the, oh yeah, that's what you did. I'm going to be scared and I'm a pretty grizzled dude. <laughs> Do you think that's something that you can't train? Do you think that's just character? I think it's character. I think it's, it's, I don't know how it was developed. I think it develops in your formative years. Some people have it. Some people don't. Um, you might be able to poker face your way through it, but I don't think that's, that that's what, what Francis was doing. I mean, that's the same character that he used to fight the UFC. Yeah. Yep. That's it. If you love the Southpaw project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. So how did Nganu get that knockdown? Uh, we talked about staying fundamentally sound and sort of within himself. He was in a good stance. You talked about uh, McGregor's feet being all over the place. So I think he and his camp had faith and trust in his chin. 
his reflexes and his power. And he stayed there. And when he, he was in a really good boxing stance and he was able to club a left hook and Fury shot just missed low, but still hit him in the chest. And normally that sort of that little, I don't want to say fade away left hook, but left hooking over a right hand circa what's his, uh, uh, Bernard Hopkins. It's a great shot. Bernard Hopkins had, he would also hit the same sort of fade away to the liver when you throw a right hand and sort of glide down your body. I think they prepped for that, that stiff one, two lead that, um, that Tyson Fury comes in with and he was just ready and he threw it. And I like how he, even though that punch landed a little high, I like how, how good of a job Francis Ngannou and his camp had him punching uphill. He wasn't leaning and reaching. He wasn't missing too big. I mean, he, he was, he missed with that left hook, but that's not from punching uphill. He actually missed, we missed short with it. Um, but anytime he did miss, he sort of re, sort of uh, rebalanced and composed himself. Um, and yeah, like the, he found that shot from being in a good stance, having his feet under him, and being and fighting within his frame, within himself. A lot of people thought Ngannou's best shot was to go in there, forget about boxing, rush Fury, and swing for the fences and hope you KO him. But Ngannou didn't do that. If anything, Fury tried that at the start of round one. Instead, Nganu did what many advised him not to do. He's done a lot of things people told him not to do. And they were saying he fumbled the bag. But man, everything he did turned out right. So one of the things they told him not to do uh, was to try to spend his time learning how to box. But then he boxed Fury. And even though MMA and boxing are related, how hard is it to go from MMA which Ngannou picked up in his mid-20s, to boxing, which he's trying to learn in his late 30s and has spent probably less than a year doing it because he also had those multiple knee surgeries. It's, it's incredibly hard because you are hardwired to grab when you can grab, especially, especially when you're getting hit cleanly. Um, instead, you have to be prepped and ready for, for solid fundamental counters when they present themselves. So you sort of have to relearn some of your your instincts that you spent years developing. And what I was really pleased with was when and, and Ngano did make some of those, I don't want to say mistakes, but he had some of those MMA reactions, but he self-corrected almost immediately. Now, where I think this would have been a problem is if it were an ugly split decision where Ngano did a lot of wrestling or looked uh you know, looked like an MMA fighter boxing. And all it does is embarrass the sport of boxing, especially if it were close um, and if it were ugly. Ngannou looked like a boxer. He was able to recomport himself and get his, his, there were times where he was definitely tired himself. He was arm weary and he was able to just sort of get back in his stance, relax his shoulders, move a little bit, not necessarily engage until he was engaged or engaged with a body jab. And sort of like let those phosphagen stores replenish themselves, let the aerobic sort of uh, refill the anaerobic and let his, his uh, energy systems sort of like revamp and refuel. And he did that. And he he did it with some, some ring craft and almost like, I mean, again, it really helps to have some professional boxers in your corner that have gone through it. 
And you got another heavily muscled guy like Tyson, who's a big power puncher. Um, you can get, you can sort of take stock into um, the the mistakes that someone who's obviously he's much bigger than than Mike, who's only five ten or five eleven, but they're both heavily muscled power punchers. And whenever the, that explosion leaves you, you got to be able to let those systems replenish and restore and go again. So you know, especially when you're fighting someone who's six nine, you sort of got to have a little bit of strategy. And I think those strategies and tactics were well considered by Francis and Gano's camp. And I think because they looked the part of boxing of boxers, or excuse me, I think because Francis looked the part of a boxer as, as much as he did, he will get another big time boxing fight. And I think, I think he will perform very, very well again. And I think after they saw him drop, uh, the gypsy king and eat an elbow from the gypsy king they're gonna take some heed when uh when lacing those fucking gloves up against this guy and consider him an actual threat and not just um one of those freak show gimmick fights and all of those instances not that this was the intention it was just obviously cheating but you find the clips of the back fist, the other elbows, the one that actually everybody saw land, the different takedowns that Fury tried to land, and you make a little package, right? And you have a great story for why they should fight again. It would be so easy, right? You already have so many materials to like poke at little things like, here's why Francis could have won, or here's dirty little things Fury had to do, right? It makes, it's not about who actually is going to win. It makes a rematch compelling. It makes people want to see it. Yeah, and you factor in the knockdown. Oh, and the knockdown. Yep, and who looked like the better fighter from the Southpaw stance? Like, come on. And their faces the next day? All of it. Yeah, it's compelling. Yeah, you can put together a real compelling narrative as to why they should fight again. Um, and And I'd be down to watch it. I would definitely be down to watch it. And here's the thing that's just as important. All the boxing heads would be down for it too. The purists. Yes. The haters. Yes. They are down to watch it as well. The first one, maybe they missed out because they were angry, but the second time they're going to watch it. Yeah. And then the more you learn about Francis Ngannou's story. Oh, you got to fall in love with the guy. You have to. And if you, if you're not moved by it and you still love the UFC and what they tried to do, well, then you're just a fucking villain and I don't need you. <laughs> Jason, we've both been around gyms and wrestling and grappling rooms. Yes, it's better to take a fight serious and train seriously than not to. But we both also know if there is a huge skill gap, we know there are guys in the gym, guys in the room, where no matter how much they train, how off and unprepared you are, they will never beat you because all your previous experience doesn't just go out the window and all their training won't equal the amount of hours you've put in. Which is to say, even if Fury didn't train as hard as he could, Ngannou was still a lot better than he expected because if he knew he was this good, he would have trained way harder, meaning Ngannou ended up being a legitimate threat and a legitimate opponent. Oh, 100%. Uh, the things that that Fury does well 
he thought he was going to be able to do without reprisal, right? Without any response. I think mean, he thought he was just going to be able to, with that little slap jab into that, that one, two that he always walks in with. And he scores on everybody with that, or he'll do that double jab, little slap hook, and he hooks you with a nice tight right hand. But when he does it, he tends to curl that punch, right? That right hand sort of drags down his opponent's body. And he leaves that chin out there a little bit for a left hook. So doing the things that he's used to having success doing, we I brought it up before. They cover up some of your deficiencies because normally you're rocking someone with that right hand. right? But Ngannou can eat those shots. And even if it's hitting him in the chest or in the shoulder, he's able to rotate through and he's able to club you with it. There were even shots where he he hit Francis in the chin and Francis still clubbed him with the left hook. And I don't think the left hook fist landed, but the forearm sort of jarred him. And you start to make everything becomes that calculation that, that this stuff should be working in the ways it's not working. <laughs> it what and when a fighter has a chin and when they have power, they can be problems when they shouldn't be problems. And that's a tough thing to, a very frustrating thing for a world-class fighter to do the things and have success in landing them, but not with without them having the normal impact that he's used to them having. I think he was also surprised not only at Ngannou's chin, but that Ngannou was rolling with his punches. He was like, how is he gonna learn how to roll with punches? You know, but when you have small ass MMA gloves, you have to learn how to roll with punches. Oh, absolutely. And those punches will sneak in and you don't necessarily see them, Um, which I I always thought was terrible to have black MMA gloves in because we have the there are no ropes. There's just a black cage. (laughs) And then behind you, right? You don't see the audience. It's just pitch black. Yeah. So it's it's like the whole white baseball. You can't wear a white shirt. White. You can't have white sleeves on your uniform because it hides the ball. That's what MMA essentially is. So you really have to sort of visually map how those punches are coming. And I think there's something to be said about that. And you know, it's not like Francis was a was a wrestler and he had to never had to sort of gauge the trajectory of some of these punches. He's been he's been a striker and a wild one at that. And he was able to really, really dial it in. And whether that that started the day he left the UFC and the 21 months after that, but he was really dialed in and fundamentally sound. I know in the UFC, he wasn't like a crisp, clean striker. He just fucking hit hard, but his punches were often wild, right? So that was the guy who left the UFC. Who the hell is this guy? He had to leave the UFC to become a really good striker. Yeah. And, and he looked the part, like understanding how to sort of shoulder roll and shift your upper body and loop that left hook over a six foot nine guy's right hand. When that's sort of his patented thing. I mean, it's easy in theory because the mechanics of it aren't that difficult, but to pull it off against the world champion at six foot nine with, with Tyson Fury's reflexes, good luck. And if they would have told me that that was the game plan, I probably would have giggled. Like, I, you know, I don't know. He's not, you know, have B-hop in there, you know, it's not <laughs> the same shot. Remember how bad Francis Ngannou's striking looked when he fought Stipe Miocic the first time? Yeah. Yep. It looked horrible. 
It looked horrible, but you understood that he had some tools. Then the question becomes, when you, when you separate the individual disciplines, you can start to work them in their purest form. Because and this, I saw uh, Campbell McLaren talk about uh, MMA is chess and boxing is checkers because boxing is two-dimensional and uh, mixed martial arts incorporates all the different skill sets. I'm like, but you're wrong there. And I, I understand what you're saying, Campbell, but here's, here's why you're wrong. Because all those disciplines together are all like they're suboptimal because there are weaknesses and deficits that are exploited by the other skill sets. It's the buffet versus the highest quality sushi. Fuck yeah, man. That's exactly what that is. Just because you put 50 things on a plate, does that mean they're all good? Absolutely. There's purity in boxing, right? And you got to see when you have, you have a good athlete who's well-coached, and puts the time in that they can do some things and and make some things happen Um, and certainly look the part against the best in the world. And this is when I said it's Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather were able to convince us that the earth was flat. Well, they did that. (laughs) Every every angry middle-class white guy was like, yeah, he was up first four rounds. Was he? (laughs) MMA angles. Was he? I mean... Because he wasn't. I mean, if you count the two rounds where Floyd didn't throw a punch because he didn't believe he had to, or maybe there was a gentleman's agreement to carry him until he gassed out. Like there's a lot. There's a lot at play there. But I think when you when you realize that you have the goods, you, you have the, in terms of power, you got the goods. In terms of chin, you have the goods. Well, let's make this guy as fundamentally sound as possible. Make it a good showing. If we can go the distance, great. We have our our Rocky story. And, well, holy shit. Didn't I say that's the closest? You texted me. Did we just see a a Rocky story play out? That's the the closest thing that we're going to to be given the privilege of witnessing in our lifetime. That is as close as you're going to get to it. And I say this to anybody who's ever watched mixed martial arts. Go back and watch the Francis Ngannou fights against Stipe when he was throwing like look like he's throwing frisbees <laughs> and then if you watch the overing fight or the the Rosenstruck fight where it looks like he was doing a freestyle breaststroke like, he's come a long way and so to be able to do that and make those improvements because again perception is everything he looks like a boxer now and he boxed and he boxed well against the best in the world and coming as close as he did, dropping the world champion, and um, you know, really, really making um, a great, having a great showing, and really, really, really showing out for the the biggest stage in boxing was uh, was about as as much as you could have asked for from your athlete ever. Now, boxing rounds and the conditioning for boxing rounds is one of the hardest things for MMA fighters to transition to. Why is the cardio for MMA and boxing so different? Well, it's the the ability to rest certain energy systems while you're relying on another. Um, And there's only three rounds most of the time, most of the time, right? You have three fives versus 10 threes. 
so if it's a three round fight, you go to the corner once, right? You're tired. Then you go out for round two. Now you only have conceptually in your mind to realize that you have one more round and that's it, right? So if you go 100% and you redline yourself and you really hit the wall, well, if a takedown happens and you rest on the bottom, you don't have the the muscle system, the energy systems, and the 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 types of micro movements that require greater accuracy and muscular control are being asked. You're being asked to do round after round after round in boxing, where in MMA you have to do it three, either three rounds or five rounds. And you have the ability to put someone against the cage, um, solidify a takedown, control position, and you get to sort of rest there. You don't have that in boxing. So if you are arm weary in MMA, you can kick, you can move. You can't, you can't not punch in boxing. You're just going to fucking ruined. There's a, a visual component to boxing that is very, very important because you don't necessarily have the same tactile component that you get without the grappling component in mixed martial arts. Doesn't mean there isn't a grappling component because there's plenty of clinching, there's plenty of leaning. But now, once you start to, to get arm weary from those engagements over the course of 10 rounds, you're still asked to be accurate with your hand positioning for offense and defense. And that's the only thing you can use. If you fail to use it because they are tired, you're not winning. You're definitely losing and you're certainly not fighting. So that that's probably the best explanation I, I can give you for it. So wrestling by itself is exhausting, but in a completely different manner. And even the exhaustive wrestling still gives you an element of control. If you don't sort of have the ability to rest, reset, refocus, and, and get your arms back and get your legs back underneath you, it just looks labored. And if you look labored and you look heavy-footed and arm-weary, then someone's just going to keep their foot on the gas. And good fighters that are able to keep that, put, that foot on the gas and pressure you when you want to rest, when you want that 10-second gentleman's agreement that, hey, you don't go, I don't go, let me just sort of rest and recover, and they're in your shit, and you can't rebound, well, then it gets real fucking ugly after that. To summarize what you're saying, right, is with MMA, even though it's longer, if you're tired in one system, like you're kind of doing a marathon pace or using a marathon energy system, and that starts getting tired. You could go to a sprint system. You could go to like a, a 5K system. Like you could keep switching your energy systems and your pace uh, based on what's starting to wear out, right? Versus boxing, you only get the one. That's it. And if that gets tired, that's it. That's the only one you had. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could even do an experiment in if you box, right? Like I, I do this with some of the people I work with where I let them do a round of just boxing. And then I say, okay, but you're allowed to clinch for 20 seconds, right? And then, yeah, there's a certain amount of fatigue that they'll have. But then if I have them go again for three minutes, but no clinch is allowed at all. Anytime you guys come together, I'm going to break you apart. They're way more tired. Oh, yeah. They then realize, oh, shit, I was using the clinch 
to kind of use a different energy system to recover that depleted energy system. So while I'm using energy system B, energy system A gets to replenish. Whereas once I take away the clinch, they can only rely on energy system A. And if that runs out, that's it. Yeah, I think you just summed up the force ex- forced exertion principle, right? They're forced to exert, exert themselves when otherwise they'd like to rest. And to, to be able to keep your composure, you have to have some, some real boxing ring craft. Um, and even, even great boxers can't fight like their hair's on fire. Like, there's a reason why uh, Hearns and Hagler didn't go 10 or 12 rounds, right? There's a reason when you fight like that, something's got to give. You sort of have to be a little more, I guess, aware of your energy systems in boxing. And you're a little more measured because when you're not, good boxers tend to make you pay. But at the same time, you see some boxers just go out there and they bring that shit right away. And slugfests tend to sort of smooth out. And then they beca- there's, there becomes sort of a rhythm to them. Sort of a you go, you go, I go, or a we go, we chill, we go, we chill, we go, we chill <laughs> back and forth. Um, MMA fighters don't really, really have that ebb and flow, except for some of the kickboxers, some of the higher level kickboxers, you see that. Um, and strangely enough, th- that's whenever it, like, when it becomes a little more tactical and a possible highlight real knockout might present themselves because it's not just sloppy slugfest. That's when the fucking fans boo and everything gets real confusing to me. Now, if you're Nganu's manager, how many calls are you getting right now for deals and opportunities? Oh, just a, an absolute ton. <laughs> um, if there's not a book deal, there should be one. Movie deals. Movie, Yeah. And the beauty of it is, and I will say this again, I said it before, is he looked like a boxer doing it. Because that's the thing. He doesn't need 50 boxing fights, right? He needs just one or two more, and he's got generational wealth, and that's it. Yeah. Yep. That's it. I mean, his, his story is what it is. So if you can, if you can maximize uh, his, his potential revenue, I say you do so. His legacy is already set in mixed martial arts. Um, I say you go after you go after a big payday with someone like Wilder. And if you and if he if he pulls off that win, not only did he take the current world champion to a split decision, he knocked he would probably knock out the former <laughs> heavyweight champion of the world. Um and then such a story will never ever be told again in our lifetime. It could end up being even more special than it is now. Yeah. I think that's it for this historic fight study. Thank you, Jason. Thank you all for listening. Free Palestine. If you like this episode and like what we do, support us on Patreon or Substack. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts Program if you want to train with us from wherever you are. You'll find lots of techniques, exercises, theory, pedagogy, and even political theory. You can even get a monthly training session with me, either in person or online. Liberation Martial Arts also comes with Fighters Brew transcripts and breakdowns. Find all our links, including Southpop merch, at southpoppod.com.